Hello and welcome to another episode of the Just For Show show, the podcast where we share our love of community theater with the people who make it happen. My name is Galen Malik. Joining me today is Heidi Swarthout. How are you doing today, Heidi? I'm excellent. It's a brand new year, 2022, and everything is still weird, but this podcast <laughs> is still here. <laughs> yes, feeling good about that. And also joining me today is Ben Slabeck. Ben, how are you? Uh, glad to be back for season three. Uh, I agree with Heidi. 2022 is weird, but the Just for Show show, about to get even weirder. <laughs> That's right. We aim to please. And Ben, who is our guest for this week? Ah, uh, yes. This week, we will be talking with Connie Canaday Howard, uh, actor, director, instructor, mentor to many, and wife of the amazing Rex Howard. Fantastic. We are glad to be back, and we have a lot to cover, so let's get on with the show. I'm excited to finally hang out with the team after work, you know? Uh, who, who's coming? It's just uh, you, me, and Nikki tonight. Nikki should be down in a minute. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, so, uh, what do you do outside of work, RJ? Do you have any hobbies? Well, I'm involved in community theater. Really? Like what? Like plays and stuff? Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, I was in theater in middle school. We did Annie. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. I played the ninja. There's no ninja in Annie. I know. We added a couple of parts. Not to brag, but I was a pretty good ninja. You know, I I brought my own nunchucks. Do you want to hear my Chinese accent? No, thank you. Have you ever been in any? No, no, I'm, I'm not really a big fan of musicals. I mean, that's too bad. You would have been great as the snowman. I, I love musicals. I, I really like that. Uh, oh God, that one guy from uh, that show. Oh God, uh, what's his name? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, he's the guy. He um, he wrote Hamilton. Oh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. No, 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 that's not it. That's, hey, you know what? That's okay. I'll, I'll think of it eventually. Oh, hey, Chris. Hey, RJ. Oh, hey, Nikki. We've been waiting for you. Hey, d- Nikki, did you know that RJ can act? Really? Yep. RJ is in community theater. <sighs> no way. My brother-in-law, Bert, is a cameraman on The Tonight Show. Do you know him? Know him? The Tonight Show isn't community theater. It's national television. Why would I know? Oh, my God. We should get RJ to record our out-of-office messages. You know, they could be like, um, Chris is on vacation and cannot take your call. Yes. (laughs) Maybe we should just head over to the bar now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, sure. You know, I was thinking uh, we could try uh, La Mariachi. Uh, They have half-price margaritas. Oh, Chris, maybe we should... Go to a gay bar instead. I hear most theater people are that way, and we want RJ to be comfortable. Oh my god. You are absolutely right. Ugh, ugh, I should have thought of that. Well, let's just get a few things straight, okay? A, ninjas were in Japan, not China. What? Also, no middle school should let a white kid play a Chinese ninja in Annie. B, Hamilton was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. He wrote the script, he wrote the lyrics, he wrote the goddamn music. The fact that somebody likes theater does not tell you anything about their sexual orientation. And and finally, my name is not RJ. Those aren't even my initials. 
My name is Ash. I've been telling you that for weeks. Now I am going to go home and I'm going to drink until I forget that I eventually have to come back to work with you idiots. What was all that? Some kind of acting performance, I guess. Theater people are always showing off like that. Well, gotta hand it to RJ. It was pretty convincing. So, uh, margaritas? Yeah, let's go. Have you guys ever read a play... A script, or perhaps... uh, Good! Well, then we are on the right track. (laughs) I'm so glad we're on the same page. But have you ever been flipping through those pages of said script and found some things that you thought, how in the heck are we supposed to stage this? Maybe it was uh, set pieces, props, live animals. I know I've seen a couple of those. Anything that made you say, what was the playwright thinking have you, have you read anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't read nearly as many plays as Ben does, so uh, or, or Heidi. So <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure there's Where's like we read so many plays, Ben. Do you hear yeah. that? Well, yes, yeah, you, yes, yes, quite. Yeah, your initial question, I was just going to say no. I've never read a play. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. I, just, I learned my parts phonetically from <laughs> from watching other people. Oh, but you know what I mean? How sometimes you just you you get a hold of a script and you think, look, I get it. We're creatives. We we can make magic happen. We can we can fake things with lights and sound. But I mean, come on, playwright, throw us a bone. What what, what is this? How how am I going to make the entire solar system happen? Yeah. Or you know, whatever it may be. <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah. yeah. I thought. I mean, I'm sure there are much worse examples in this. But when we were in it, I thought that Wonder of the World was pretty challenging in not only the quick oh, yeah. costume changes and frequent costume changes that the one character has to do, which are breakneck pace, uh, yeah. but also the fact that there were a number of different sets. We abbreviated them, so we managed to do it pretty well because uh, we had like just a flat and it was a reversible flat, and so we could do that kind of well. But there are a lot of different Cost, quick costume changes and different sets and there were two sets at the same time because there's sort of a split screen thing and it was just like so true. i know there's crazier things but that was of the ones i've been in that was the the craziest idea of at least for costume changes that i've seen yeah that one was bonkers that was um wonder of the world david Lindsay bear is the playwright that we're gonna give grief right now what were you thinking man um in addition to those (laughs) those set changes um spoiler alert there are supposed to be a a couple of women in a barrel going over niagara falls so you have to kind of make that happen um and it's a comedy and it's a you know weird outlandish comedy so you can can have some fun with that but i can remember um my my husband was this was at the albright community theater directed by craig gustafson and my husband, Johnny, um, was called upon to help build the barrel. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm an engineer. I can, you know, draft something up and we can make a barrel. That's simple. And then they're like, oh, 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 but wait, two women have to fit inside it. <laughs> oh, 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 and wait, it should be on casters because it has to, you know, roll at one point. Oh, 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 wait, but those casters have to be removable because sometimes the barrel 
you know, just needs to be like carried from place to place. And he was like, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes it's just a barrel. Big enough you know? for two people to fit inside, but also this woman brings it on a bus with her. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this barrel was only one thing. And then absolutely. I mean, I know I had a, a couple of, um, I needed a dresser. I needed help in that show getting in and out of very specific outfits, a pair of overalls, you know, a giant wig, you know, weird stuff. But um, the one character that uh, Lindy played um, was, well, was multiple roles. And it was everything from like in one minute, she was in a bald cap. And in the next minute, she's dressed at, you know, dressed as like a, a medieval maiden at a Renaissance restaurant. <laughs> like, yeah. it was a lot. It was, it was bonkers. I, and I think sometimes um, playwrights are like, I'm running a comedy, so I need this outlandish thing. And then you're stuck having a character with an aspic on yeah. a bus yep, handing it to another yep. person holding a barrel that is both sometimes big enough for two people to fit in that also has wheels but at other times can fit in your pocket and you're like what <laughs> yeah, and you're yes. like just because you want it to be funny doesn't mean it has to be you know what i mean it doesn't have to be oh, yeah. this giant thing yep yeah and I've, I've got, I don't know, I've got a soft spot for that play and for that playwright. So I, but I still must give him grief. Like, come on, man. What were you thinking? Oh, yeah. It was a lot. You <laughs> put I, a lot. So I think one of the reasons I like this topic too, is I think it depends on the perspective you're looking at it from. We here at the Just for Show Show do a lot of community theater. I would say that is most of our bread and butter. And Heidi and I have both sat on councils where we read scripts and we pick shows for things. And I'm not saying that these shows are impossible, right? But it's just, you look at it and you go, whoever did this the first time had a budget and it was huge. Yes. And then you boil it down and you're like, I, it's not possible. It's just not possible. Right. Yeah, do we have so. the money or the manpower to make it happen? What mm-hmm. about you, Ben? What's one that you've read that you thought, oh, come on, man. This is great writing, but how are we supposed to do this? So I did a lot of thinking, and there's one that I've brought up a lot before, and I'll save that as like a, a little at the end, you know. Um, but I, I went back to some of my old play reading catalogs and stuff that we had to read, and I found this one. It's a play called Out of Order. And it's a, a 1990s farce. It was written by an English playwright named Ray Cooney. Um, oh, why is that and, familiar? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure he wrote plenty of other things. I can look yeah. them up. Um, but he, the the play is fine. It's it's set in a, a hotel, and it's in one room, so it's a pretty unit set. Um. But the thing that caught me off guard when I was reading it, and I went, oh, that seems impossible, is at the top of the show, someone like opens the curtains to the window, and there's a human being stuck in the window, and they're like, dead? Or, oh. we, we, well, you're led to believe they're dead. And we later found <laughs> out that this person was knocked out. It's going to say a very dark farce. <laughs> right. You instantly um, have a corpse. <laughs> um. 
but what they what the the idea behind that window is is the window is openable and okay. it can and it can come to a full close because at a certain point they get the body out of there but the trick is and this is where i thought it was nuts is the window has to be triggerable in that at a certain point someone opens it and goes to go through and then it snaps shut onto their neck and that is what knocks them out and that is why people think that they are dead and it happens over the course of the show and i just was like that is so you have to like you have to have a genius construct that you have to have the same person be in charge of that every night and it's not like you know we like i said we've all worked at community theater and it's not that i don't trust these people but you know, like if if I were ever going to do that in a show, I'd be like, "Give me a button, right? Yeah. Like have have it be rigged to a button. Yeah. I'll push the button." Yeah, that's that's verging on a professional magic act where they sort of engineer yeah. these trick prop type things where you mm-hmm. can make someone disappear behind a thing and trap doors and all that kind of technical stuff. Not and to mention, it, it sounds like it lands on somebody's neck. That doesn't yeah, sound it lands on their, uh, yeah. And that's the thing. If it were one time, like if it were a one-off, maybe. But it's the, the fact that this window snaps shut is consistently referenced throughout the course of the play. That's <laughs> Like their, someone goes you know, out of it and then it snaps shut and then it's locked and then they can't get in. So now they're stuck on the roof of a hotel. And they yeah, got that's their door bit. You know, normally in farces, it's doors. Mm-hmm. It's like doors opening, closing, slamming. And they were like, what's what's more exciting than a, a door? You know yeah. what? A window yeah, <laughs> It's and, more exciting. And then the characters, are the, they're like, how did you end up in the window? And he's like, oh, well, I remember opening the window and trying to get in. And then he lets go and it snaps down to his neck. And then he like passes out again. And they're like, mm, that's what happened. And you're like, I like... That was one of the reasons, like I said, it was, it was a relatively funny show, a lot of mistaken identity, but one of the main reasons that I, I gave it a low score on our end, I was like, I don't want to be any, I don't want anyone to have to build that. I don't want anyone to have to do that. (laughs) If you've got the resources of Penn and Teller, go for it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. No kidding. Yeah. I've definitely come across those scripts too, and especially on you know, play reading committee type things where you're, you're really trying to determine whether, you know, this usually small theater with usually small budget can, can make it happen. You know, do you have, will you have the right amount of people show up all the way down to, can we do this set in this space? Um, Can we afford whatever costumes, props are needed? You know, there's a lot of decisions that, (laughs) that go into it. And so, you know, being on those play reading committee, you, you can kind of look at something and go, okay, yeah, maybe, okay, this is a little challenging, but maybe we could do it. But I remember there was, there was one that I read and th- thankfully, I mean, uh, hopefully this person isn't listening and, and I'm breaking their heart or anything, but everything was <laughs> submitted anonymously. I don't know who submitted this play for consideration. They obviously loved it and thought, you know, this is where it's at. I want to do it. Um, it did not make it through, and I can tell you <laughs> the many reasons why. Um, it was called Mr. Roberts, and um, so first of all, the cast was like a whole bunch of dudes, and I don't mean like five or six dudes, which can be challenging enough sometimes at, 
at that particular time, I know we had just done a play or two where we had a hard time getting, you know, enough guys of, of the right age to show up an audition period. Um, and this required like, I don't, I, I'm going to botch the number, but let's, let's call it 18. I mean, it was that outlandish where it was like, this requires 18 men in military uniforms. So, okay, we got to make those, <laughs> make those look good. Um, takes place on a submarine um, with a trap door and there's a live goat that, you know, that, that is part of the plot. Is and that I, one of the, is that one of the cast? Is that one of the men that you yeah, need? Is the yeah, goat? it has to be a male goat. Um, there is no, <laughs> and it was, you know, and it was like one of those um, sort of old timey pieces where it's like, well, couldn't you do, couldn't you call it Mr. Ro- Mrs. Roberts and do like all an all ladies version? I guess you could, but this is one of those pieces that's pretty old timey where you would not have necessarily done that. Um, so yeah, it was like, okay, you know, it's fine. When somebody wrote it and they're like, we're going to write it for all these men. That's fine. You know, there's lots of plays that are all men. Um, but the, the, the parts that got me were the set requirements, the goat, the costumes. I'm like, this is not, <laughs> this is not for community <laughs> theater. Just end the list at, and you need a goat on stage. I think that's <laughs> usually enough. It's like, somebody's going to do this play. I don't think it's going to be us in our, our small <laughs> community theater. Although Ben, this is where we convince Heidi that I submitted that play. I'm very oh, no. hurt. And oh, now we're so leave, I'm leaving Wait, the podcast. G- Galen, I also submitted that play. Oh, how is, Yeah. <laughs> then, then we're just kicking Heidi out. Then. Oh, come yeah. on, we guys. Can't take that. Hey, um, I never said it was a bad play. I never said there was anything <laughs> wrong with it. I just said it was one that made me pause and, and say, what was the playwright thinking? A, f- a few fun facts about the play. I just did a little digging. Uh, oh. It was based on a novel of the same name. It came out in 1948. And it yeah. swept the Tonys that year. Yeah, it won best play, best performance by a leading actor, best producer, author, best and director by a goat. Best, yeah, uh, best goat. You know, it it was Henry Fonda and not the goat, but yeah, it's <laughs> and then it was later turned into a movie in 1955. Yes. And I think that's how um, I, I do remember that. I remember that you know it was like okay, this is maybe where how it became popular or became on this person's radar, mm-hmm. and. And that's all. That's great, you know. Yeah, but Star Wars um, was a great movie too. But I'm not going to start to put it on <laughs> the you. community theater stage. Yeah, well, exactly. What about William Shakespeare's Star Wars? Um. <laughs> right. I want to do Pulp Fiction, and I won't stop yeah. until we do it on stage. Well, yeah. No, I, I just wanted to read those few fun facts because I want our listeners to think we're not we're not trying to crap all over these plays. No, we don't want to crap on the people no, no. suggesting them. Not just some all. sometimes. There's a very it's, specific overlap between the world of, of plays that are available and, and the community theater that yeah. has no budget and you know, works yeah. out of a basement. I <laughs> get that. it. There are some plays that I would love to do that I don't know if I'll yeah. ever get to do them. You know, I it's it's all good. It's all good. No all we, love. We're not we're not yucking your yum, but mm-hmm. it's just the that question of come on, playwright, throw us a bone. Could it have been, you know oh, yeah. <laughs> could we I have was, done without the goat? <laughs> When we were on committee, they had us read the play that goes wrong, and I loved reading it. And mm-hmm. even even afterwards, we read it because someone suggested it, and we wanted to show the community that we listen. 
But the play that goes wrong is not a show that a community theater is going to do. There is no budget. The play that goes wrong needs a working elevator. It needs things that light on fire. It needs a whole yeah. second floor that is able to collapse. Wow, and that's yeah. just three things. That's just <laughs> three of the things that go wrong. Yeah. It goes yeah. even wronger over the course of the show. I just don't want to give it all away. Yeah. But And I get it because we are creatives. So there is that that you know urge to problem solve and figure it out and and figure out how are we going to do this let's let's you know figure oh, out yeah. the theater magic and make it happen but um yeah sometimes it's just i don't know I, I mean on the other hand you look at a show like noises off and you could very easily ask you know what was that playwright thinking you have to have a set that turns around um but people manage to do it in community theater all the time so you know, yeah, I feel like sets can. I feel like sets can be a bit more creative. I feel like sets can be a bit more on the creative side, no matter what your space is. Um, VTG did a wonderful production of "Communicating Doors" by Alan Ackborn, and they it's set mostly in this hotel room and there's this huge window that if you've never read the play and you're me you're like wow what a beautiful window and then it, and it's on like the third floor and then at a certain point someone falls out of it and they have like a bed sheet tied to them and then people are physically pulling them back in from out of a third floor window and vtg knocked it out of the park so yeah sets i feel like but so goat stock was in that. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That show too has a thing that bothered me. Communicating doors. Someone right before, right before the end of Act One, someone is like trying to choke somebody, and then Act Two starts up, and the body is gone, and someone was like, "Where's the body? Like, where'd he go?" And the actress goes, "He's under the couch." And I went, mm, I was that's I was like, that's a dumb conceit, right? Mm-hmm. Like we would see a body under the couch. I was like, what a dumb. And apparently every night this happened and it happened to me too. They're talking about how he's under the couch. They're just being really like nonchalant about it. And then a hand pops out from under the couch. And I was like, whoa, you got me. <laughs> and it turns out what they did was they gutted the back of the couch. They filled it with enough like support that people could sit on it but there was a big gaping hole in the back of the couch that in the blackout this poor actor had to crawl under the couch just for this joke and i was like what like was it funny was it funny enough i would totally do that but yeah but was it funny enough right that that was the conceit they were like yeah he's under the couch like and that someone's like well we got to take a perfectly good couch we have to cut the back off of it yep (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, Ben, you and I were in the Real Inspector Hound together. Come on, Tom Stoppard. What were you thinking? There's a corpse on that the was, floor. That was the, the one I was going to bring up if we had time. Yeah, oh, cut from the start of the of the the show. There's a corpse, you know, but it has you know a, a live actor um, under a couch, and <laughs> then you you not only have to then build your couch a certain way to accommodate this this person um but you know you're also trying to block around them and not hurt them or trip over them and hurt yourself and you have to use the couch like a couch yeah that's the problem and yeah that's um 
that's pretty challenging. And then, you know, you, the people that would play the corpse, because we, in our production at Steel Beam, we had multiple, multiple lovely people who, who were the corpse. Thank you. <laughs> Thank just, you. Yeah. Special shout out to, uh, <laughs> yeah, to, to Lindsay, Lindsay and Gary and, and Abby and Paul. Yes. yes, everybody. But, you know, it was like not very comfortable. I mean, they, they're laying on a hard floor for an hour and a half. Um, yeah, come on, playwright. Throw us a bone. Wasn't there one night where Gary was like, don't try to get me up. Just lift the couch off of me and I'll wave. And then you guys can put it back on top of me. So for one curtain call, we oh, lifted the yeah. couch up. Someone from the ground waved at the audience. And then we just put the couch right back on top of them. <laughs> well, so he was hey, like, yeah, works. he's like, I'm probably not going to be able to get up. Yeah, it'll be easier just, that way. Yeah, he's like, it'll just be so much easier if you don't have to get me up off of the ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the things we do, though, you know, like. But yeah, obviously, obviously, there will always be wacky props like food. Mm-hmm. You know, food, food in yeah. itself, and any anything consumable is a wacky prop. But then you've got playwrights like Tina Howe, who writes a show called The Art of Dining. And it's set in a home that's been converted into a giant kitchen and they serve a six course meal. Yeah. And I, my, and my high school did that show. We did. Wow. And we, we made, and I was part of the, I was the sound crew head, but I was also on the props crew. And every night before the show, we had to make like two different types of soup. We had to make <laughs> pudding to look like hollandaise sauce because you can't just have someone eating hollandaise sauce. Someone eats it at one point, like slurps mm. it down and you're like, well, that can't be actual hollandaise sauce they'll die mm-hmm. yeah, but they were like yeah. they were sad and the actors have to like eat all this food and the and the actors have to look like they're preparing the food we had a, a working kitchen on our set in like high school because someone lent it to us but you're just like why yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah some, sometimes you're like playwright have you ever been to a theater do you know the resources <laughs> that we have to work with we don't have running water we don't have um, I was very impressed a few years ago when um, Tim Curtis directed The Drowning Girls at Riverfront Playhouse in Aurora. And um, because that script, I mean, it calls for three bathtubs on the stage with water, sometimes running water. Um, the actresses have to be wet. They're, you know, they're these um, victims of one of the first convicted serial killers and one, you know, one of the first sort of uh, cases of forensic science in a, in a courtroom. And um, these women are playing kind of, um, you know, his, his victims, they had been his wives that he had murdered each of them in a bathtub. And now they're kind of telling their story and it's touching and it's funny and it's infuriating and it makes you feel all the things. It's a very good play. But um, if I just saw that said, you know, again, way to go Tim for figuring out how to do it and the the team there at Riverfront but if I just looked at that script I would go well this is a great read but how do you do this I mean mm-hmm. what what theater can, <laughs> can put <laughs> bathtubs and water um on their their stage safely you know with all the lights and everything else around and um but they did it they managed yeah. to do it and it was very good yeah, it is amazing when you think of all the things that could possibly go wrong when you take on a show with a person in a couch or a window dropping yeah. on the neck or oh, God. Know, tubs of water. There's so many things that could go wrong. It's got to be a real risk to take 
to go ahead and say, all right, well, playwright's a little bit crazy, but we're going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do it. I've got a vision. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's risky, but, but then, yeah, in some cases the payoff is, is worth it. Um, yep. but sometimes man, oof. But I'm up for it. If there's ever a gag in the show where like somebody has to like hide in a cabinet for like half an hour or like run off one side of the stage and then come on the other one. I did one where I was like, for no particular reason, you you exit stage left and then I had to run around back behind the set and then crawl into the fake back of a a window seat and pop up out of it for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah, that's my kind of thing. I like that. All right, all right. The element yeah. of surprise, Galen's. In. Yeah, I'll look for those particular scripts for you. I'll try <laughs> yeah. to find them. Yeah, I'm all about it. Yeah, I, like, I, yeah. <laughs> one actor that just randomly pops out of furniture you know, throughout the show. That that that's fine. I'm good with that. I am inspired now to start writing plays, and these plays are going to have one play is just going to have a live goat, a working yep. kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, with running the, water, the goat elevator has to cook that collapses. Dinner. Yep, the, so, the whole <laughs> set's right. got to burn to the ground by the end of the show. And, and you throw darts into a real wall. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're on to something. And then find out who uh, who's up for that challenge. David mm-hmm. Lindsay a bear. <laughs> <laughs> and which theater is brave enough to say, "Yeah, we'll do it." I'd go to that play, Galen. For the record, I would you'll see. That. My goat's going to win a Tony. <laughs> A goatee. Aw, a goatee. Our guest this week is someone our listeners have wanted to hear from since we started this show. Ben and Heidi were delighted to finally catch up with the charming Connie Canaday Howard. Welcome, Connie Canaday Howard, to the Just for Show show. You are an actor, a director, an instructor. You're the managing artistic director at Buffalo Theater Ensemble chair of the theater department at the College of DuPage, a member of the Actors' Equity Association, a member of the artistic team of the Jeff Committee, and you've been cited in Who's Who among America's colleges and universities 11 times. (laughs) It's incredible. It's no wonder that so many of our listeners have um, requested to hear more about you because you've really um, made such an impression on our theater community in the greater Chicago area. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. That's very kind. Well, um, we always like to start with the origin story. So tell us a little bit about when and where your love of theater began. Um, I'll go back a little bit farther because I don't think it probably makes sense to talk about the first theater event uh, without this story. I was um, very young. I was four and um, I was raised on a farm. And at the end of the workday for my father, we would always um, have dinner and then he and I would ride horses together. And one day um, it was, my mother was a teacher. So I know it was the summertime because she was home during the day. And um, I wanted to go with dad. And, um, she said, he's not home yet. We'll have to wait until after dinner. And I don't remember this at all. I've just been told it by numerous people that I said, okay. And then I went outside and walked to the barn and, um, 
opened a stall and climbed up on a, the stall wall and got on a horse um, bareback because, of course, I couldn't lift a saddle. And um, I got on Goldie, who is my favorite horse. And uh, Goldie started walking out. And when my mom looked out the kitchen window, she was doing dishes. Um, I was on Goldie's back going down toward off of the farm. So um, she ran out and got me and da, 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 da. And my parents put me into dance class, into ballet, because they thought it would teach me self-control, um, which I guess it did. I mean, I guess it did, but it started a love of the arts. And so um, then I was, I did some things in school, but I honestly don't remember what they were. And I had my first dance injuries. I blew a knee when I was in junior high and um, I couldn't dance for six weeks. And they were auditioning for a show right at that time. So I auditioned for the show and started sort of a, a lifelong love that it didn't replace, but it surpassed my love for dance. So, so that was my start. Um, Do you remember what that show was that you auditioned for? I, I don't. I remember it was a Neil Simon, and I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Barefoot in the Park. Um, although I think I would remember that because it's such a small cast. So I don't remember exactly what it was. I can remember some just a few years later, but I can't remember that one. So, yeah. Okay. You know what they say, folks, you always remember your first. (laughs) (laughs) And I bet Mr. Simon is a lot of people's first. He wrote a lot of plays and it kind of works well to Mm -hmm. let young people, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, give, give a shot at those. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, when did you first know that you were going to pursue an education in theater? Yeah, I didn't set out to do that. When I went to college, I had been touring since I was 16 with dance companies and then doing shows when I was home. And when I met with my my counselor um, before, who was an English prof, um, before I registered for my first semester, he was looking at my um, ACT scores and my interests. And so he put me in all Monday, Wednesday classes, which I thought was cool. You know, I had Tuesday, Thursday, Friday and the weekend, you know, not realizing that the classes he put me in, I had a freshman um, introduction class, which was like a survey class. And then everything else was a junior, senior level class. I didn't know what 300 and 400 level classes meant. Um, Except for, so he he filled out a schedule and then um, there was an elective. And he said, well, you've been really involved in theater. Why don't we put you in acting one? And I said, sure. And so I spent Monday, Wednesday in classes and Tuesday, Thursday, and most of the weekend in the library preparing for those classes. And I also auditioned for the fall show and was cast. So at night I was in rehearsal and very quickly it sort of evolved into, I was a double major and double minor as an undergrad and very quickly it turned into a double major of um, theater and public relations and then a double minor in English and speech. Yeah. So it was almost, uh, would you say you almost sort of accidentally 
yes. fell into that. It was, del- you know, you're taking a class because we hear that we, we talk to a lot of people and I had a similar experience where oh, sneaking in some theater classes here and there. And then before you knew it, oops, I double yeah. majored. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I had so many, I had so many dance injuries that, um, that I knew I wasn't going to be a professional dancer for very long. And, um, so then I started, to not consciously do it, but I started to find where I belonged, you know, Mm -hmm. and that was very clearly as an artist, you know, as an actor. And, um, and I sort of was encouraged as a director. I don't think I planned that either. In fact, I know I didn't, but I was one of the only um, women in my program that was interested in directing. And I had it, a teacher who encouraged that. I think because he liked to push my buttons. <laughs> so, um, and I was, you know, like, like many, many people, I was, um, I didn't want somebody pushing my buttons. So I stood up, you know, and, Good and you. Uh, so anyway. So after college, did you sort of dive into theater education right away or or what were the steps that led you to eventually become a theater educator after yeah i um i graduated and i then went that summer as well um for one more education class and it was sort of um a unique story at the time i thought i was going to go to a particular graduate school which I didn't go to, but um, I decided that wasn't the place for me. But at the time, I thought it was. And my my mother was a teacher, and she encouraged me to have a backup plan. And um, <laughs> and my this particular graduate school, anyone who is um, doing any an MA, an MFA, or a PhD had to have a teaching certification. Um, they no longer have that. Um, stipulation. And I don't think it actually lasted much longer than when I was applying, but, um, but they did at the time I was a senior in in college. And um, so I got my, I I did student teaching then that fall. Um, And from there, I was working as an assistant to a managing director at a community theater as well and decided to go to graduate school. But even when I went to graduate school, I didn't intend to teach. Uh, When I got to grad school, my TA position, because not all TAs actually teach, but I did. I taught uh, beginning introduction classes, and then I also one of my mentors taught a big survey class of playwriting, and I I was his teaching assistant, so he did the lectures and I, I graded everything, um, mm. which was hellacious. But um, uh, <laughs> I was going to say good, it had to be interesting at least. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, uh, was a good introduction to it. And then when I left graduate school, I wasn't sure I was going to teach, but I started um, – I worked in insurance as a day job and did shows at night and uh, also took some teaching positions, like a class here or a class there. Um, and I realized I was missing teaching. Um, and so gradually it flip-flopped to where I was teaching full-time and doing artistic work part-time. 
and I was much happier. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important. Connie, anyone who knows you or knows anything about you knows that you are a mentor to so many actors and directors, myself included. Uh, but for our listeners, who were some of your mentors? Who were those people that just got you? Who 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 gave us the amazing Connie Candidate Howard that we know today? <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a bunch of mentors. I think um, th- it started probably in high school. I'll talk about the theater mentors. Um, and um, Dave Pollock was his name. He was a literature teacher, but he also ran the theater program. And he and his wife Kathy, and um, and then I competed on the speech team in dramatic and terp and duo and that kind of thing. And and um, he was also the speech team uh, coach. And I don't know. He always made me believe that everything was possible. Um, as opposed to people who put limits, he was the person who said, you don't have any limits unless you limit yourself. And, um, yeah. And not many people were doing that. I don't, I, I think because they were trying to be practical and then, uh, working hand in hand with him was the head of the choral music program. Her name was Linda Mitchell tree or is Linda Mitchell tree. And, um, uh, they were both, she encouraged me between going into my senior year, I auditioned for an international choir um, that I made and uh, we competed um, throughout Europe. Uh, We were stationed in Denmark. And, um, and so before I started college and I'd already been touring with the ballet company, I just sort of believed that if it was meant to be, and if you worked hard enough, it would happen. And I've sort of always believed that throughout my life, that if I really want something and I work hard enough, I can make it happen. Um, And if it's not happening, then I must, it must not be the right fit. So there were my first two. And then in, in college, I had a bunch, but probably Jack Jenkins, who was the head of that program, um, it was his first year, what was my freshman year. So we sort of were um, freshmen together. And um, and then in grad school, definitely Gil Elvgren was his, is his name, and Stephen Coleman were huge um, influences on me. Um, but really, probably two other things were huge influences. One is everybody I work with, you know, um, mm-hmm. that you collaborate with, that you feed off of. Mm-hmm. And that's so true on projects, but it's also true in the classroom, you know? Um, I mean, you talk about me being mentors, but y'all are mentors to me every day, you know? So, uh, you hear that Ben, you're a mentor. (laughs) I I never thought I'd live to see the day. (laughs) And then my parents, my parents were extremely supportive. So, I mean, I think they kind of thought I was, um, wacky. Nobody in my family, (laughs) Nobody in my family was an artist, right? But um, And certainly when they put me in that ballet class, they didn't think it would stick. It was just supposed to be a stopgap, you know? Just um, to distract you from climbing on horses. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, but they've always been really supportive. So, um, so anyway, yeah, those are my mentors. Excellent. 
So talking a little bit about some of your, the roles that you've played, because you've played some pretty amazing roles. I was looking through just a couple of your bios and Shakespeare and classics and contemporary plays, so many wonderful roles. Um, What is a role that you've played that you are most proud of? Not to be um, capricious, but uh, I think it's always the one you're working on, right? Um, Mm -hmm. At the time, looking back, there are, are many, but the one that's that's strongest for me right now today. And I think it's probably because it's the last one I did, you know, was uh, right before everything shut down and we went in shelter in place in uh, March, 2020, we had just finished a production of the cake and I played Mm -hmm. Della. Um, And uh, it was the first time I'd acted in many years. And, and it was a role that I think I know lots of people like Della and in some ways, I'm similar to her, but but I'm really not Della um, mm-hmm. as a person. So it was interesting to find her heart, which I think is true in whatever genre, or at least is true for me when I'm acting in whatever genre you're playing to find what really makes this person um, true, what makes them tick. And it was interesting because I think I don't know if you know that show, but I think all of those characters are trying really hard to be their their best possible self. Um, yes. They just don't agree with what the other is doing, you know, but they love the other mm-hmm. person. And I, I know some Della's and I think Della, which of course is Brunstetter's point, uh, the playwright's point is she learns more about herself as she's widening her viewpoint toward other people. Um, and she becomes a much better person. Yeah, that is a beautiful script. And I, I didn't get to see your perform your performance. I was in another show at the time, but I saw the understudy performance. Oh yes. Um, she did a great job, I guess. Blown away. I mean, the really lovely, lovely script and a beautiful production. So I could absolutely see why that would be a, a character that kind of is in your heart still. Yeah. So we've we've crossed Della off of your list, Connie. Um, but looking forward, once we get out of all of this, once we get out of this thing we're living in, what is a role that you would love to play one day, and why? Yeah, I don't. I don't honestly know. People ask that all the time. You know, ask what mm-hmm. do you really want to direct? What do you really want to act? And I know lots of people have lists, but I I actually have never done that. It just sort of. Um, happens I mean honestly um not to self-deprecate but I I don't know if I will act again do you know I mean I I probably will but it's I don't consider myself to primarily be an actor Mm -hmm. um there are lots of roles that I think you know (laughs) that I've aged out of you know um uh and now I'm in a new age bracket I think um, so they're roles that I normally for years I couldn't play, um, mm-hmm. uh, that now maybe I can, you know, um, but there's nothing that, uh, that I have to play, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, good. That kind of takes the pressure off. Um, <laughs> you don't necessarily have something right. you have to do that you'll be right. 
excited about that next opportunity when it comes along and sparks your heart. And that's right. okay too. Connie Canada Howard is Hamlet. I love it. I can see it. <laughs> I'd go. I'd, I'd absolutely I, I go. Would ask, oh, I, I, I'd be there. Definitely aged out of. <laughs> As well as gendered out of. Actually, I've, I've seen some really wonderful female Hamlets, but anyway. Yeah. Well, there we go. Hey, I, <laughs> nowadays, I, I think you can't count anybody out for anything because um, I don't know, during, especially during the pandemic, we've talked about this before. There's just everyone got to try on roles via Zoom and, and these other places sure. and I, that maybe they wouldn't have gotten to do. Um, sure in real life. <laughs> so, but you know, you see some of those and you kind of go, Oh yeah, I don't really need Hamlet to be a certain age or a dude or anything else. As long as it's a good Hamlet, bring it on. Actually, I did just think of when I would like to be in noises off. Um, Ooh. I mean, I did noises off when I was younger, but I'd like to play Dottie sometime. You want to be Dottie? Oh, okay. Yeah. So Who did you play before? I'm- uh, well, <laughs> that's a story. Um, I was directing it. And oh. um, about 10 days before we opened, um, we had a cast member um, who injured herself. She broke her foot. Oh, and no. um, uh, lots of people in the area know Amelia Barrett. And Amelia was this actor. And what's her name? Belinda, I think. I can't remember mm-hmm. her name. And there was there wasn't a way for her to do it with a walking cast because it was running up and down steps and around the the set you know and so we switched roles and Amelia um, finished directing the show and I went in for her so um, oh wow <laughs> with ten days was, to prepare it was scary <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I bet it's it's one thing to know all of the beats in that show and the all the precision and the timing from the director's seat and then completely different to have to mm-hmm. pivot to the other side wow especially Ooh. that show it's one thing to know yes. act act one and act three lines but oh act two it makes me nervous just thinking about it. <laughs> <Boy>. <laughs> I would run off stage and go, where's my next exit? <laughs> What's my line? So, um, and then as soon as I had the line, the, the next line, then I knew the next sequence, you know, but, um, oh, it was awful. I mean, it went fine. It went fine, but it probably maybe helped jumpstart. Uh, Amelia would have been brilliant in that role, although she was also brilliant, um, what finessing it but as the director but it it sort of upped everybody's cost in the show (laughs) (laughs) sure yeah so wow well tell us a little bit about you know right what you're doing right now what is involved with being the chair of the theater department at COD? Well, the newest development is that I'm the co-chair of the theater department with Amelia Barrett. Bom, bom, bom. Um, <laughs> because I am about to um, retire as a professor. Um, I'm not retiring from BTE, but I am retiring from the college. So, uh, uh, and I'm, we are right now um, in the process of remote submissions for the college shows this term, which had not been the plan. We were doing in-person auditions until Omicron raised its head. And so for the first two weeks of the term, which starts on Monday, will be remote. Um, uh, So everybody's submitting, and we've certainly done this in the past. Um, 
in the past two years uh, where we've had remote submission, although most of the students who are students right now weren't students at the time we were doing that. So it's a new experience for them. Uh, and then um, we're directing, I'm directing the dining room and Amelia is directing um, Badger. And uh, so we'll jump into those, we'll cast this weekend and we'll jump into those next week. Um, BTE was set to do Naperville and uh, because of Omicron and because of um, testing and uh, the college, the MAC closing, um, we've postponed Naperville until spring. Um, but I was supposed to be directing One Man, Two Governors for BTE in the spring. Um, starting in March, and that is now postponed perhaps into next season, perhaps into another season, but uh, that's that's what's next on the horizon. So that's it. Everyone right now, right? Just sort of rearranging plans and trying to keep everybody safe and right, right. trying to stay sane in the process. So right. yeah, you're, you've got a lot of um, plates in the air that you're juggling. Yeah. Yeah, we all do, right? Yes. Um, so congratulations on your retirement, um, first yeah. and foremost. Uh, you've been, uh, you know, you've been educating students for, you know, a very long time, all extremely grateful. Um, is there a moment that you can recall uh, that was just like a real breakthrough moment with a student? You don't have to use names, of course, but is there just something you recall in your educational experience where you were like this moment? Oh gosh, there's so many, you know, there are some, you know, from classes, there are some from, um, rehearsals. One that I often think of, I hadn't been teaching at COD for very long. Actually, you know, I hadn't been teaching very long period, but, um, I had a young man in my class and it was an improv class. And often people um, who, who are new to the idea of um, improv isn't only, always performance, but in this sense, it was performance. And uh, they think it's about being funny um, or dissing or, um, you know, one-upping. And that's not what improv is, of course. It's or at least that's not what good improv is. It's about feeding <laughs> off of each other and collaborating. And this young man was very quiet in the class. Um, obviously, he was an athlete based on his build, and he wasn't in class with any friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was he wasn't a loner, but he was um, to the side often. And it was probably midterm before he started to really engage. Um, he'd always participated, but really engage, you know, volunteer and lead. And um, uh, we were to the point of doing group improvs and doing different scenarios. And he was really strong. And I remember pulling him aside and saying, hey, what are your plans? Because you have talent. Um, I'm not saying that you should pursue it, but if you were interested, you could definitely pursue it. And um, he told me that he'd been a football player in high school and he had a full ride scholarship to a top 10 school. And uh, then he blew his knee playing softball, uh, uh, just goofing around. But 
the scholarship was rescinded. So he'd come to COD to sort of regroup and he'd never had time to participate in high school because it was always in conflict with training or with practice or whatever. So, um, so he took the class on a lark, but had decided that this was really what he wanted to pursue. And, uh, and so then, you know, he finished his associates, he took a year off or so and came back and did some brush up courses and then started auditioning and, um, got cast in some shows downtown and then got cast as part of the company at Chicago Shakes and then got um, one of the two internships at Stratford Shakespeare Festival. And from there he got a pilot and was uh, a lead in a short lived series, but a really good series. Um, And then from there he jumped, to LA. And he's, I'm telling the story, not necessarily because of his trajectory, but because he gave himself time to evaluate what he really wanted to do and then went for it. And I think when I started to notice his instincts about midterm um, was when he let himself go for it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not that he didn't have those instincts before. It's that he was probably unintentionally, but laying in the weeds until he felt comfortable. Mm-hmm, sure. um, so, so much of, of being able to risk is about feeling comfortable to take the risk. So the moments that I think of the most about breakthroughs are about when an ensemble has been built, either in the classroom or in the rehearsal hall that allows people to risk. I don't think... Most of the learning doesn't come from, you know, your victories. Not that those aren't important. Of course they are important. But it comes from when you fall, excuse my language, but fall on your ass, you know, and and find the way to pull it together and continue on. Um, uh, And when you listen, as opposed to always needing to be the driver, when you're playing off of somebody, Um, so, but there are a bunch, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, which term are we going to talk about? You know, (laughs) of course. Oh, that's amazing. Good for him. I mean, it doesn't sound like, again, that was his plan, but the fact that he discovered something new about himself must've been really fun to watch. Yes. Watch him go through that process. That's very cool. One thing I will say, Connie, is even in my time, uh, as your student, that was something you always encouraged everyone to do. You you would say things, and a lot of the times, like, this is probably the safest environment that you're going to be in, you know, artistically, because you are all students, but you are all friends. And if you're going to learn how to take risks, now is the time to do that. Um, so I know that that stuck with uh, a lot of people. So it's just great to, oh, great to hear great where point. that started and... <laughs> Oh, that's so true. I mean, that's so, so true. Nobody said that to me while I was going (laughs) through it. But looking back, I mean, that's 100% true. That's great advice. You hope it will be, right? You hope you find people in the theatrical world who you feel safe with, but at that time when everyone's the same. Right. 
yeah, that's the, that's the baseline before it gets scary. <laughs> You're out there with people you don't know. Absolutely. And then, you know, even then, I think you surround yourself with, they may not be performing, they may not be artists, but you surround yourself with your, sometimes your, your family, but your chosen family as well. So that mm. regardless of what project you're working on, you have somewhere to be safe when you leave the project, right? So, mm. um, so you can go back in the next day and risk again, you know, it's always better if you can risk with everybody around you. But as you get more experience and more training and you feel more grounded, it's less important, you know, that you feel comfortable with everybody you're working with. I think I remember I was doing a show years ago called lovers. I don't know if you know that piece. It's a companion piece, lovers and losers by Brian Friall. But, um, lovers is, um, and I was way older than this, but lovers is about two high school sweethearts. Um, and she gets pregnant They're there. It's set in Ireland and, um, they're from a parochial school, so they don't go to school together. And, um, and they really, really are in love. It's sort of the, the play is saying these two people found it at 16, what lots of people will look for their whole life. Then the narration is both the setup to that day. They're studying for final exams. And, um, and then it's after they're done with that day. And what happened that day was they rode to an island and were spent the day studying and the character I was playing wanted to play and he wanted to study. And, and at the end of the day, they didn't make it back to shore. Um, they oh. drowned. Um, wow. uh, but it was a love story and we didn't like each other. The guy that was playing <laughs> my lover, you know? So, yeah, um, and I remember having people critique it and go, it's so great. Are you guys dating? Cause that, you know, the chemistry is <laughs> so great. No, no, that isn't no. happening. So, um, so it's being able to, to make people believe something in the life of the, I'm not saying lie. You believe it in the life of the show, but you don't have to believe it outside of the show, you know? <laughs> Well, that's right. Yes. In fact, all the better if you don't feel that way outside of the right? show. Right. <laughs> Most of the time, nine out of 10 times, that's the better option. <laughs> so Connie, um, having been immersed in the world that you've been in for as long as you have, what is some advice that you would have for someone who wants to pursue uh, theater education, whether they're just starting out or just wanting to update their skill set? I, I think... Um... Of course, this is coming from an educator, but um, I think you never stop learning. Um, so, you know, whether it you take a, a studio class or you take um, an accredited class, you know, get yourself into scene study um, and start to play with other people and start to expand, brush off your skills or learn those skills about how to audition and then don't ever stop. You know, if you're not in a project, you know, always be working, working on um, whatever you choose to work on at that time. It could be, you know, it could be your physical instrument. It could be um, your hits. It could be your audition skills, but never stop working. Um, I'm retiring as a professor, but I, I, doubt very much I retire from artistic work until I 
you know, am doddering. Um, so, you know, I mean, because yes. it's just a part of who you are. So, oh, of course. Um, yeah. Great advice. Um, you mentioned earlier that you don't consider yourself an actor first. Do you consider yourself a director first, an educator first? Which which one of your many hats is the most comfortable one for you? Yeah, acting's not uncomfortable, certainly, but and that it is where I started in the theater um, part. But I think I'm pro- my mind is probably more of a directing mind. So when I'm acting, it's really hard to divorce that part of it. Um, uh, not that I'm second guessing the director. I always trust the director because, you know, that's my job. But I, I have a hard time focusing on just my moment before, you know, mm. or um, I don't usually have a problem when I'm on stage, but in preparation going off stage or, um, you know, that kind of thing, I think it's harder. When I was doing the cake, for instance, the first night we had an audience. And if you know that show, there's a a scene where there's um, a very intimate scene between Della and her husband. And um, I was underdressed in a particular costume. And I was doing my scene change with the dresser. And the dresser said to me, where's your costume? And I went, what? And, And I looked down and I didn't have it on. And, um, and we both went, and there was one more scene before I had to be in that costume. So I went back on stage and the dresser ran to get it. And, um, when I got back, I put that costume on as I took the other costume off. Um, but, uh, I think it was because I was looking at the whole play as opposed to what exactly do I need to do, right? Um, I mean, it was a really silly, silly mistake that could have had tragic consequences had I not had a a really great dresser. Um, uh, Shout out to Kyle if he's listening. So anyway, I'm positive I have, uh, I see things really from sort of a central metaphor point of view. Um, uh, action metaphor point of view. What is some advice that you wish that someone would have given you when you were just starting out as a director? Is there something you had to learn the hard way? You know, when I was in my MFA is in directing and when I was in, and I was the only female in my class. Um, when I was in school, I can't tell you the numbers of times that we were taught or we were told that directors need to have a stamp, um, that when someone sees a show without looking at a program, they should be able to identify who the director is by the approach mm. to the show. And I rebel against that. I rebelled against it then, and I rebel against it now. I don't think that's a director's <laughs> okay. job. I think a director's job is to illuminate the show for the audience. Um, it's not to manipulate the script it's to bring it to light um and i wish that um someone had said make sure you stand up for what you see what your artistic vision is more um Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong i think i did but i think i was tentative about it at first i also had um and i know he was 
um, trying to help me make that stand. He didn't know how I was going to make a stand, but just help me make that stand. But um, anybody who knows me knows that I am an emotional person, um, very passionate, whether it's, you know, joy or um, frustration or um, uh, hurt or whatever. And, um, and I empathize. I empathize when I watch things. I can watch a commercial and start crying, right? If it's a sentimental oh gosh, poignant yes. commercial. Yeah. <laughs> and I oh had <laughs> I had a grad uh, teacher who said, um, anytime a woman cries, it's a manipulation. <gasps> and I knew what? when I heard it that he was trying to push my buttons. Oh. Um, and so... I remember I heard it twice before I took him on. And then, I, you know, I'm the only woman in the program, right? So who's he saying wow. that to, you know? And um, and then every guy who was in the program, and we didn't know each other well. We'd just been in the program probably five or six weeks by that point. Um, uh, every guy that was in the program agreed with me, right? And so it became... We're making a stand, not in defiance, but we just disagree. Um, and then Good. I think I found my footing. So I wish that someone had said that to me earlier, because I think it would have been a more seamless transition. Yeah, that's so true. For some people, um, showing emotion is is viewed as some kind of weakness, and I think we're we're starting to to change that. That yeah, I think message, we're getting better about um, that. Thankfully, yeah. yes. And I think it's maybe even more true when someone says it to a gentleman, do you know, to a guy. Mm. Um, that's just not reality, you know, um, emotion, mm. whatever. As long as you're not hurting someone with your emotion, emotion is justified and um, allows people to see who you really are. Yeah, Absolutely. So it sounds like, Connie, from everything that you're saying, that even though you're retiring from the education side, that we're still going to see a, a lot from you, whether that be acting or directing. Um, as a director, and any hints or tips for people coming to see you, what really gets your attention at an audition? And what would you say is a major audition no-no? Um, oh, good. That's a good question. Major audition no-no is don't throw furniture. You know, um, <laughs> I cannot tell you oh, how no. many times She's I've speaking seen a, from experience. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times I've seen a chair go across the stage and break because someone thought that was a great way to start their monologue. Um, uh, they, they look you dead was, in the eyes and go, can I use this chair? <laughs> uh, and, um, oh, no. and what gets my attention is somebody who really takes a strong moment before, if you've had class with me, I call it a capture, but mm -hmm. a strong moment before into your first fighting for, um, those two things, a hit and then a fighting for, um, if you've got that, then you grabbed attention. And the only way you lose attention is if you don't stay committed. Right. Mm -hmm. So whether you end up in somebody's project or not, you're going to end up in somebody's yes file. If you do that. Oh, interesting. Would you also say that throwing furniture is a is an attention getter at an audition? <laughs> it is an attention getter, but but probably not in the way you want it to be have been achieved. So um, you heard it here first, folks. Throwing furniture, both a major attention getter and major no no in auditions. 
negative attention. Not what you want to be remembered for at that audition. I want <laughs> twice. That's crazy. Throwing furniture. But, and I, I just, for some reason for you to, to give that in your advice, I have a feeling yeah, that that's happened to you more than once. Like you, like if there was a highlight times. reel, I would love to see it. Multiple <laughs> times. It's hysterical. So, oh, so funny. Gosh. Oh boy. Wow. So we love a good humble brag on the show because, you know, we, we all have these accomplishments, things that we're proud of that we don't get to talk about because we're supposed to be, you know, very modest about um, it, all the good things that happen to us. But this is the place to brag about it a little bit. So could you tell us, is there an award, a recognition, or even a, a great compliment that you've received along the way that you're really proud of? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, it is hard to talk about that. Um, I suppose when I received Outstanding Faculty, that award, um, because my colleagues then, because that's been several years ago now, and now are really phenomenal, you know. So, uh, and it starts with um, student nominations and then um, goes to a committee of peers. Um, and it was very touching. Uh, and the way I chose to you always do a presentation the following fall. And the way I chose to do a presentation was by doing snippets of scenes um, uh, that I coached actors and um, students and former students um, to talk about the things that made teaching important to me. And, oh, you tear up. Working with those um, individuals was... Uh, really moving um, because they were helping me do this thing that I had to do, but they were so overjoyed to work with each other. Many of them hadn't been students together. They were meeting for the first time in this pool of people that I put out a call and said, who wants to do this? And, um, and so there were probably, I don't know, 15 or so people, um, and we did a series of little scenes with me talking in between. Um, and that was really a, the, the award was um, moving and, you know, humbling, but working with those people that had made that award happen uh, was even more so. I would guess so. That sounds really personal and special. And I'm sure that they were just thrilled to be a part of that tribute to you too. So I'm sure they remember it just as fondly. That's really sweet. That's very nice. Um, switching gears here real quick, Connie, you've been in and out of, you know, great places in theater for, you know, heck dating all the way back to just getting out of grad school. Have you had any brushes with fame, anyone famous or fun stories that you have that you'd like to tell us about? Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, everything from 
you know, walking out of an elevator and bumping into Owen, I mean, like slamming into Owen Wilson. Um, (laughs) And then I was like tongue tied about, you know, because I'd knocked his coffee out of his hand and I was running to an audition, you know. And and he ended up taking care of me, you know, getting me off Aww. to my audition to um, uh, when I was in New York, I was a, a part of Joffrey's um, youth program, youth company. And then I took classes in different places and I took a class with uh, Barishnikov. Wow. And um, and, you know, aside from, you know, being awestruck, um <laughs> He walked past me and, you know, dance teachers, you know, correct your form. And so he walked past me and um, tapped my shoulder to pull my shoulder back just a hair. So I adjusted and then he looked at me and he went, good form and walked on. And that like made my entire day, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Good form. So, uh, um Oh, I worked with Yossi Israeli um, years ago in a production of Measure for Measure, which was really dark and collaborative and physical and demanding. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, I don't know if you know that director, but he, um, he speaks with such a thick dialect that half the time when I was listening to him, I was only picking up like every third word and then I'd have oh, to no. put together what it was he was saying um, before we started again. Yeah, things like that. Um, I'm sure there are others, but those are the ones that I'm thinking of right at this moment. So. I mean, Barishnikov, how are you going to top that? Yeah. Good form. Thank you, Goldie the Horse, for, <laughs> for the path to Barishnikov. No kidding. <laughs> um, Connie, could you tell us about a magic moment? It's something that we that we bring up a lot on this show because it seems like, you know, every once in a while you have this experience, whether acting or directing, where you just stop and, and kind of have this goosebumpy moment of, oh my gosh, this is why we do this. And it tends to be a moment that, you know, you couldn't recreate if you tried 80 times. Um, could you tell us about maybe a, a time you experienced one of those magic moments? Yeah, it is, but we, we don't ever try to replicate, but we, we're working always to make it happen and you never know when it's going to happen. I think maybe, um, a few years ago, I directed a production of Time Stand Still. It was a production that I um, choreographed action to happen between scenes because I didn't want to see any scene changes happen. And it was so much about the evolution of these people moving toward what makes them uh, whole she has a line about looking, she's a photographer and she's looking through her lens at when time stands still, even with the, with a conflict happening around her, she, everything sort of stops while she pulls that picture into frame. And really that's true for all four of those characters that they find what makes time stand still for them in the course of the play. And it was, um, a tight rehearsal schedule. It was uh, the second year BT was back after a hiatus. Um, and I remember on opening night, 
getting to the end of the play in the very last moment, this couple who loves each other deeply but cannot continue their relationship. They've moved on in their lives. Um, they wish each other well. Um, they say, um, I'm paraphrasing horribly, but they say um, uh, happy trails because they can't say goodbye. Um, happy trails. Um, as a reminiscent of the lyric, happy trails to you until we meet again. And um, he leaves and she's get packing, ready to go back into a war-torn area. And she sees something and she starts to take the picture. And in the play, it ends with her, her camera to her face. We tried several different ways of staging it. Um, you guys both know Lisa Dawn, I think, and Lisa Dawn played that role, and who is a photographer, and um, <laughs> as well as a really gifted actress. And um, and yes. we tried it several different ways, and I went, I don't think the play ends there. I think the play ends with you recognizing what you've taken, that mm. that it is you looking forward, knowing that this is your calling, for lack of a better word. And, um, and then she took it and ran with it. And so when that, when the camera came down and she was looking straight ahead into, you know, New York, but the audience in our theater, um, I, I teared up both for her, but really for the whole show that led to that, it mm -hmm. was, um, a really beautiful opening night. Love wow. that. Sometimes it's just a simple adjustment and yeah, it just makes the, makes the goosebumps come up. Are there any other favorite stories you'd like to share with us? I remember once I was doing a, a show <laughs> and I was in the show. I wasn't directing it. Um, it was a one act. I can't remember the name of it. And a good friend of mine directed it in, um, years ago and the role I was playing um, it was a two-person show and it became you know a, a sweet little sitcom love story you know um, but earlier in the day I'd been stopped um, it was set in New York City and I'd been I'd gotten a ticket a traffic ticket and I was upset I mean the character was upset and the cop then had decided to stop after shift to make sure I was okay because he had my address on the ticket and I'd come home, meaning that character had come home and was upset and was um, fumbling around in her apartment and she lit a joint and um, was smoking, which was a clove, clove cigarette, you know, um, mm -hmm. on stage. And I got there, it was opening night of this little one act and it was a night, a series of one acts. So we were this first show. And then there were two more shows that night. And the prop master had forgotten to put um, matches on the stage. So I had the clove cigarette, but I had no way to light it. And oh, no. I tore up that apartment, man, that set. Like, there has to be something somewhere. There has to be something somewhere. I couldn't find anything. I was ad-libbing all over the place. And um, finally got to the place where I was moving forward, but I hadn't lit the cigarette. There was no way to light the cigarette. And um, and the guy who was playing cop knocked on the door. 
And so I went to the door and he started talking about smelling the smoke because he hadn't been <laughs> listening in the wings. Oh, no. Sure. I thought I was going to kill him. Um, oh. uh, and so then he finally caught on that it hadn't been lit. And so then we're improving our way, trying to get through to the end of the next beat, the next, so we could go on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And we finally made it. And, um, and the reviewer that night, um, chose to talk about the erratic and extremely funny direction of the writing um, <laughs> and how it really made you empathize with those characters when it hadn't been the writing at all. We were improving. <laughs> I felt so badly for that playwright. Um, but uh, so anyway, that was a funny one. Hey, the playwright probably didn't mind. They, they got a positive review. They're happy. <laughs> Oh, how fun. Well, thank you. Connie, I got one more question for you because I've known you for a long time and I don't know that I've ever heard the real story of this. And it's not necessarily acting related. It's just Connie related. Um, <laughs> but for... but real for all, story. Yeah, for all of us who know you, could you please set the record straight on how you and your husband met? <laughs> Because I've heard like 80 different variations on this story, and I have no idea what the truth of this story is. Yeah, we were, um, uh, he was the pianist of a Best of Broadway show at an amusement park. And um, I was uh, part of the company. And um, so we, we met in rehearsal, but we really didn't pay much attention. Well, at least I, he says he, he had a crush on me. I didn't know that. I didn't notice. And, um, uh, and he had a birthday party that he invited all of us to, um, uh, 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 it was a bar at a resort. So, you know, there was a pool and stuff and, um, and his band was playing. So on breaks, then he would socialize with the people who came to his birthday party. And that's really the first time I, I remember talking to him. But then about two days later, you know, we did this show, I don't remember now, probably five or six times during the day on mm-hmm. on an hour and then probably an hour break. And then I did again. So the, the women's costume was a, a leotard and tights. And then we had pieces that went on top, you know, whether it was a, a vest for this um, scene or a you know, a tie, bow tie and, um, dance pants or whatever. And dance pants, um, you know, tie in front, have a flap in back and then they tie in back too. So it's like crisscrossing. And we started in a pose like a, all that jazz, um, kind of pose at the top. In fact, that might've been the song that started it, um, started the review because that's really what it was, was a review. And there were like three steps, up to the platform that had the band on it and Rex was playing piano and, uh, but it was a recorded track. So he was playing along with a recorded track, um, that he had recorded. Um, uh, and we had been out in the park, a friend of mine had been out in the park and we lost track of time. So we just made it back to hit the stage. The curtains were closed and he was, he had his costume on, he was my partner and, um, he had his costume on, but I was still getting, I, 
I had gotten my leotard and tights on, but I was still getting the dance pants on. And I had the, the back flap down and tied in front, but I was trying to get the front flap tied behind me. And I thought it was tied. So just as the curtain was opening, I hit a pose and then my flap fell down. Oh. <laughs> so my leotard was, you know, showing. I mean, I was covered, but my leotard was showing and I was frozen. And I didn't move for like 16 counts. And so I'm like, okay, do I move? Because I'm going to pull everybody's attention to me if I move. But everybody's attention is probably on me anyway, because I'm the only one with a red leotard showing. And, um, and all at once, I felt somebody reach between my legs and pull up my dance pants and tie them. Oh. And I was like, I don't know whether to kiss you or slap you. And um, and so then I started to move and I turned around and it was Rex who had done it. And so at the end of that show, which was, I don't know, a 40 minute show or something, he came to find me and apologized for being so forward, but said, uh, you know, you look like you were in distress. And um, and then he asked me out. And that's how it started. Oh, Wow. Wow. What a smooth mover that Rex is. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that story, Connie. It was nice hearing it from you. It was nice getting the, the, <laughs> the, the full 100% picture for once. Yeah. I want to hear I want to hear the alternate stories, the fan fiction. It's, what else did you hear, it's, Ben? It's just been a, a combination of that story, but just none of the facts were ever <laughs> <laughs> you, you you weren't sure what of those facts were real or like they were, were right right, right like, on the, we were on this float at Disney World and all of a sudden <laughs> so so it was always like yeah wardrobe malfunction stop playing the piano but but yeah like the way it's told sometimes it's like Connie was out on stage and like her shirt was about to fall off and Rex got off piano and in this version he was in a pit orchestra and he like leaped onto the stage and like yeah. covered it with his jacket and you know what I mean like each each of the stories had a had a, a, a crumb of truth but I was like yeah. well, I have I have Connie Canada Howard here right now I want to ask her set the record in, straight in front of all of these listeners. It was dance pants and he was the pianist everybody so <laughs> Now we know. <laughs> I love it. That's a great story. That's a great, um, a great showman story. And you've been you know? together Every forever. Every once in a while, it works out. Every once in a while, we my husband played together. a dead body behind a couch and in a play. So you know, in high school, and he would never get on stage now, never ever. But mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. those showmances, powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> two oh. two kids. Four grandkids later, still there. Three. Three. Three grandkids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Connie, we've got something to tell you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Connie, thank you so much for for meeting with us today. We really, really appreciate it. And I know that there will be a lot of happy listeners to learn just a little bit more about you. Uh, Um, And I do hope that you'll come back. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And that's all the time we have for this episode of the Just For Show show, although we hope you will join us for the next episode. And of course, the show would not be complete if I failed to thank my co-hosts. Thank you to the lovely and talented Heidi Swarthout and the equally lovely and talented Ben Slabeck. If you have questions or comments or you'd like to share your own theater stories and maybe have them read on the podcast, you can reach out to us via email. That email is 
justforshowpodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can check us out on our Facebook page. A lot of uh, fun activities to be found there. On behalf of Ben and Heidi, thank you for listening. Take care, and we'll see you next time.